Don't shoot the deputies. Hello and welcome to Don't Shoot the Deputies, a podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. At the time of this recording, it's the start of the 2021 summer holidays and there's nothing we would rather be doing than recording a brand new episode with an amazing guest, Steve. Absolutely, Russell. A huge welcome to all our listeners and well done for making it through an absolutely bonkers year. Indeed. Now, we're delighted to be welcoming Sonia Thompson to the podcast today to discuss the topic of disadvantage. Sonia is head teacher of St. Matthew's C of E Primary School in Birmingham. Sonia is someone we find extremely inspiring for a whole range of reasons, including her passion for the curriculum, her work around reading for pleasure, her interest in evidence-informed practice, and as we'll be exploring today, her belief that all children can succeed regardless of their starting points. Sonia, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting. Thank you. It's great to talk to you today, Sonia. Now, we've mentioned some of your interest in Russell's blurb there, but can you tell us more about your background and why you do the work that you do as head teacher now? Oh, gosh, I've been in teaching for a very long time. I'm not even going to say the number of <laughs> I don't look that old, but it's been a long time. <laughs> I've always worked in schools in disadvantaged areas, and I would, I would say that my own background, which probably say that I was a, a pupil premium child, coming from a large family, um, growing up in, a, in an area of high disadvantage. But the thing that really drove me was having parents who probably didn't quite understand the education system, the British education system. They came from Jamaica. But they were very, very adamant that their children should do well. So they may not have been able to communicate to the school the exact things that they wanted the school to do. But certainly in terms of my home life, education, reading, um, being focused, being organised was something that they were really, really, um, they really felt was important. Um, And I would say that that kind of ethos is something that I've kind of embedded in the work that I do. So I started off um, as a primary teacher in London. And I taught in London for about five years. Big shout out to Salisbury Primary School, if anybody ever hears that. (laughs) Um, That was a fantastic first school, very middle class area, but serving a really mixed cohort of children and parents. And and a great head teacher who really saw the value in people. She She very much was about enabling staff and seeing the potential in her staff. So I remember there was a point in in my time there, about two years in, when um, I felt like I wanted to move on, but she wanted me to stay. So there was one job that came up. So she said, apply for it. Um, And then somebody else who joined the same time as me applied as well. So rather than um, one of us not getting it, she split the job into two and gave us both a job out of that particular um, thing. It was a real um, inspiration, I thought, inspiring that somebody would value you enough to do that and want you to stay um, that much. So um, I came back to Birmingham after I had a baby and did lots of Senko work. I was a Senko for about four years. And again, a really interesting avenue to, to work with children and families, again, in a, an area of high disadvantage, who needed particular elements of support. And again, empowering parents to feel that they had a voice um, in their children's education. And again, being very mindful that that voice may not be the exact, they might not say the exact things that I, I wanted them to say, but it was about how could I support them 
to get that voice heard in, in, in the way that they wanted it to be. And then I went on to, I came out, stepped out of the education system for a while and worked with businesses and organisations to support education. And then went, to, no, actually left and went back to London and became a consultant in London, in Haringey, um, and worked as, a, as an education consultant in Haringey for a couple of years, then came back to Birmingham. Oh God, I've been all over the place. <laughs> back to, I can't believe this. I'm, I'm intrigued with my own story. <laughs> Um, as an English consultant and I actually worked for Birmingham as an English consultant um, for about five years and then when Birmingham decided that they were getting rid of the local authority the education section of it then you know before they kicked us out I was actually invited to come back into school so and it was the best decision I ever made best decision I came back into school as a deputy um, and kind of worked my way up from there what a great story and how lucky you're both those incredible cities to have had such a fair share of Sonia Thompson (laughs) Mm. but yeah (laughs) fantastic so let's discuss that idea of disadvantage a bit more that you've just you've just started to explore there I noticed that where you work now at St Matthews about 50% of children are eligible for free school meals what do you make of the whole label of disadvantage? Because it's a very broad thing, isn't it, to to kind of label so many children with different backgrounds, different parents, etc., with this one label of disadvantage. What do you make of that label? And you've given us a bit of a hint there, but why are you so drawn to working in those kind of areas where disadvantage levels are so high? I think starting off with a label, um, I don't think labels ever help. Mm. But what they do is they pull out for people an area that needs to be focused on and I do think that children that happen to be happen to be born into a certain area that means that sometimes they are end up with not the best opportunities if a label is needed in order to really support those children then I think it benefits everyone but as I said I'm not I'm not I'm not about labels but unfortunately that's that's what it takes to get some recognition because I do think that children that are born into certain areas there are disadvantages that 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 come up where we work in in Neachels in Birmingham Neachels has a reputation Neachels has a that there's a a feeling when people mention that the name Neachels and there's always a conversation around um, oh you work there do you oh not, not that's not nice but I think Children that are born in in Neachels, there there are things that make it difficult. Housing, for instance, Neachels is is one of the fifth most deprived areas in Birmingham, third in Britain. Mm. So the the disadvantage, particularly around housing, particularly around employment, are real. It's not that that these are not things that are made up. Mm. Children who happen to be born there then have those things um, that affect them. And of course, when there is poverty, other things, there are other knock-on effects of that, that mean that for some children who live in these areas, it is very difficult. It's a very difficult situation outside of school. So for me, I always think that school is the place where we can provide those opportunities that children need. That children deserve. I just think it, 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 it's something that they deserve. And, and I always think that it shouldn't matter where you're born. You should be entitled to the same quality of education, the same opportunities as every other child. And disadvantage, I would say that disadvantage doesn't mean deficit. 
we're not dealing with children who haven't got brains and abilities and ambitions and dreams and who want to do things and affect change. We're not dealing with children like that. I think it's very rare where you come across a child who doesn't have ambitions and dreams, but it's how we can support children to move that forward. So I always see it as a real um, mission to, to make sure that that happens, but not just as a school, I think one of the other things that we do at St Matthews is we support lots of other schools and we've supported lots of other schools for a long time, not for financial gain. There's no there's no financial gain in it. But I always think that in education, you spend so much, it's such hard work when you're a teacher, as you both know, mm. um, it can be a non-stop job. And I think that if you have created something, thought about something, you're working on something that has affected your school positively then it should we should share that I really believe that we should share it and support other schools um, so we're, we're definitely about that hence why the things that we do get involved in perfect thank you so much and Sonia if we take this on another step um, we know that from the national data we see each year pupil premium children as a whole do not perform as well as their non-pupil premium peers Whilst this is clearly a complex issue, what do you see as some of the main reasons that this frustrating gap still remains? I think sometimes you've just got got to rethink certain things. Where we talk about disadvantaged pupils, often we talk about interventions, and often that means children coming out of classrooms to do things. I'm not a great believer in, in interventions in that way. I'm a believer in empowering the person who has those children the most, which is the class teacher. And I think it, it always boils down to quality first teaching. That's what the research says. Often we've kind of, we, professional development, the way that we've supported teachers um, has not always been in the most positive way. And I think it's really, it's critical that as we uncover ways, particularly evidence-informed ways, of supporting teachers to do their jobs in a better way. What does the evidence say about how we can support teachers to do a better job in the classroom, to, to seek out ways of unpicking the learning, of doing the things on a day-to-day basis that are the best bets, really? Because nothing is certain, nothing is given. There's no one way, regardless of what people say, the evidence doesn't support that. But there are things that if we do those things, they will achieve better results. So it is about empowering teachers. And I often think that um, one of the remits of the of the EEF, the Education Endowment Foundation, is working with schools that are not necessarily the schools that are in special measures, but they're the schools where there's a small amount of pupil premium children. Mm. And often it's those children where a school feels as if it's successful with the majority of children, and they keep doing the same thing over and over again, but there, there are some children where they need something different. They need the teachers to understand a little bit more about how to do that thing in a better way. And it's about how, how do we get that across to those teachers in those schools, as well as the, the kind of traditional schools where you'd find large numbers of people, premium children like ourselves. That's really interesting because you've reminded me of a conversation I had with a head many years ago who said to me, that she's always found it easier to improve outcomes for pupil premium children in schools where the proportion is very high. And I, I wonder whether it's linked to the reason you're saying there in that 
that, that in perhaps those schools there's more a, a complete understanding amongst staff about the the challenges perhaps some of those children are facing and more of their as you say quality first teaching is tailored to acknowledge that those differences where perhaps that's not the case so much where there's a very small proportion of children who are on the pupil premium list that's really interesting now I mentioned in my introduction that you have a huge passion for reading Sonia I don't think there's any teacher in the land that would deny that strong literacy skills are obviously the bedrock of so much other success in a child's education In your experience, what are the key things that schools need to get right in order to ensure that all children, including those labelled as disadvantaged, become competent readers and writers during their time at primary school? And I know that whole books have been written about that. So just, yeah, feel free to go wherever you like with that one. I suppose for me, I'd start off with saying that, um, again, the evidence says that reading for pleasure and reading for progress go hand in hand. I think we've kind of, we're moving away from this idea that schools have always been, um, we haven't got time to do reading for pleasure because we're so busy. Even the kind of end of day read is, there's no time for that. I think we're slowly moving away from that. But I think it's taken a while and I think there's still a long way to go. But the research says that children who who read for pleasure and have agency in terms of their, not not compulsion, not me, the teacher, forcing you to read a book, but actually you, the child, picking up a book and reading it because you want to makes a difference to that child's education. And I think what we want in schools is to empower children. And the the, the evidence also says that when children do that, it has an impact on their will to actually learn the skills of reading. So I think we're in, certainly in when we're moving forward phonics, which I think is critical. Um, I think a good, strong, organized phonics program within every school and and a kind of um, a clear understanding of staff who are well-trained and understand how to drive phonics forward is critical. But I think alongside that, reading for pleasure, children hearing books being read aloud every day Mm. um, and children enjoying and understanding the importance of reading for pleasure is as powerful. Um, We're able to infer before we learn our sounds. I don't know if you've got children, but if whoever has children, you kind of know, you give the child a look and they know what you mean by that. (laughs) You don't need to spell it out that I'm mad with you when you say, you know. So th- those those skills and abilities when children are hearing stories read aloud, besides the fact that the vocabulary, the opportunity to hear, the fluency, the intonation, the vocabulary, all of those things are critical as well. And I don't want to ever diminish the need for us to teach children how to read really, really well. And it, it, it's kind of our, our mission to do that. But I also think that schools, it's our mission to enable children and empower them to want to read for pleasure. I think we can only do that through enabling and empowering teachers. And often, you know, teachers don't think that it's part of what they have to do. Um, And I do think that it should be. um, It should be part of that mission that teachers see a compulsion for themselves to read for pleasure and know children's literature so that you can recommend to children. Mm. You can talk to them about books. Um, Besides the fact that it enables um, you to 
teach writing in a better way because mm. obviously if you know where good settings are where good characterization is and you're not waiting for somebody else to tell you that then of course you can feed that into your teaching of writing as well and we know that again the researchers that reading and writing they they are very much interlinked along with oracy so we know that you know the more empowered and and, and knowledgeable you are about all of those things the better Steve before you jump in with your next question just on that on that point Sonia because I really agree and I always Mm -hmm. say to people that if I was to go back to the class because I'm largely out of class I PPA cover and whatnot but if I was back in class the biggest regret that I have is that I didn't have enough knowledge of children's literature when I was class-based so that I could make those recommendations and just a, a reflection the year six class I've covered for PPA this year has a teacher who devours children's literature I mean loves it to the point where you know pretty much every book in her book corner she has read and it, it the difference I see, you know, she pops in at the end of the day as the PPA day is coming to an end, just to, just to come and say to children, right, here's where I want you to get to tonight. And you've got tough year six boys wandering up to her excitedly (laughs) with a post-it note and a book going, how far do you want me to get tonight? (laughs) And it's all about this kind of really beautiful relational approach where she's just loving the reading and they're just loving the reading and they're that their excitement is just feeding off each other. How do you get more teachers to be like that? Because I know that teacher has been like that probably since she was a a toddler. You know, she just loves books to that extent. How do you get more teachers feeling like that? I love the word that you've used there, this relational um, Mm. experience. For me, I always say, because you do do find those teachers, those, you know, kind of stars Mm. in teaching, reading stars in schools. Um, Teresa Krebin calls them teachers who read and readers who teach. Um, you find those people in schools, but I always think that it's not economical for there to be just one person. <laughs> of course, if they believe, they take that enthusiasm and passion with I think it's a compulsion for head teachers to drive Reading for Pleasure forward within their schools. Um, I really do think that as leaders, if we know, and I would say, In the same way that we know about the evidence for teaching maths, we know about the evidence for teaching reading, then the evidence is out there for the absolute importance of reading for pleasure. So why as head teachers wouldn't we be compelled to drive it forward within our schools? So that it becomes part of your culture and not part of a classroom. Mm. I always think that if it's part of your culture, you walk into a school and you know that that is a reading school. And I think, as I said, I think it's the head's job, it's the senior senior leadership team's job to drive that forward. Part of that is giving staff time to Mm -hmm. read, um, providing funds for staff to buy books, supporting them to talk about books in school time. So giving over your inset time to talking about what the research says about reading for pleasure, what the benefits are of reading for pleasure, what the outcomes will be for children if they read for pleasure and want to read. I think the more we do that, the better. We always start the year at St Matthews with an inset around the pedagogy. What does the pedagogy actually say? What are the things that teachers should be doing so that staff actually know it's more than just picking up a book. It's more than just reading at the end of the day. There are, as you said, um, Russell, those relational things about reading, the type of things around book talk that are really important, not just the environment, of course, because it's not about having fancy 
spaces, but it is about using spaces and knowing um, how to set up spaces so that children are compelled to use it because adults are using it. And it's about rotating books. It's about putting authors together and having people who can talk about those things. And again, that takes time. Getting your school involved, there's so many free um, opportunities to get authors to, to, to find out about authors, to get involved in festivals and things like that, to put money aside. One of the things that I've, I've done, and I've done it for about eight years now, and I've kind of, is I, I put it in my school improvement plan that Reading for Pleasure is on that plan. So I've got to move it forward. My governors are going to ask me, Sonia, have you moved that forward? Every year I've said, no, there's still more to do. <laughs> Never ending. So you've got to give me a little bit more money. <laughs> and to do it well and to keep it as a focus. So for me, I think we, I would say that it's at the heart of our school and, and that compulsion. If children at St Matthews leave being able to read and loving reading, then we've achieved our mission, we've achieved our goals. Brilliant. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that it's in your culture, not your classroom. That is so powerful. And Russell, I don't know if you remember, we... As a school, we took every member of staff to Waterstones once uh, as part of an inset. And mm. the, the ideology being that everyone got to mingle with books and we could all sit there as staff and really look at books. You found out as people's secret passions for books. And you could then feed it back to the school when it becomes so infectious when you see a, a group of adults really engaging with child literature. Mm. And you know that you can then benefit children from that. Do you remember that, Russell, and what company? I do, and it sums up Sonia's point about time. Because yeah. I, I, I can imagine when I first opened this question up and Sonia started to speak about it, people might have been thinking, but when, when am I reading children's books? So if we mm. if we carve that out, you know, if we're saying this is important, you know, Sonia's saying this is as important as anything else you do as a school, mm-hmm. then it deserves the time, doesn't it? But um, that's the age-old sort of problem in any school improvement strategies. It's the time, but it's like, well, <laughs> what do you give the time to if you don't give it to, to reading? So, yeah. No, that was good, Steve. And I think it, it was it was interesting two ways. One, it revealed how little lots of us did know about the recent children's literature. Mm. And it's funny as a deputy now with a, a slightly different kind of balance to my life. I find that <laughs> I put a tweet out recently about it the first thing I do when payday comes buy some new children's books now, you know, and I feel like I've got a little bit more time and maybe my children are an age now where I like to share it with them. I kind of pretend I'm buying it for my children, but I'm just buying it for me to build up my <laughs> stuff. But yeah, picture books and, and whatnot. And I think now it's easier to keep your finger on the pulse of new books that are coming out because there's so many great teachers sharing books all the time online. You know, people like Simon Smith is mm. you know, I'm broke because of that guy <laughs> and all the picture books he shares. I also think because we also make a big deal about teachers reading for pleasure and reading educational books, research books. That for us is just as important. So mm. we kind of we show our children um, across our school, for instance, if you went into my deputy's office you'd see her display of her matches the lead maths lead so she's displaying all the books that she reads in order to empower her to become a better math leader so it's about reading being something that we don't just it's not just about children's books it's about all books supporting us as people Mm. to inform ourselves so that we can do our job in a in a a better way Um, and I think it's important for children to see that what we're trying to create here are lifelong readers not just you know not just as I said it's not just about them reading because we we tell them to but being compelled to read 
and seeing the power of reading throughout their their lives um, as something that you can't you're constantly doing yeah. um, and, and the more you do it the more it gives you something and you know people talk about um I was reading some somebody was put on Twitter today how do you find time to read why don't you put the books down now um, that is a way that people relax. I think some people, mm. you know, I, I love to pick up a good educational book mm. um, and read it. And that's for me, that that's my relaxation as well as giving me other things, but that's how I relax. So I think it, it's just a great thing to, to show children in terms of, of something that they will be able to tap into throughout their lives. Yeah. Thank you, Sonia. And I'm moving on slightly. Uh, one thing we've heard you talk about before, a particularly fantastic episode on the Mind the Gap podcast, is your belief that every child brings their own cultural capital with them to your school gates. Can you tell our listeners what you mean by this and how you allow room for teachers to embrace this in your school's curriculum? Again, this, this, this wasn't something that I kind of came to myself Years and years ago, about 11 years ago, when I was work, happened to work with Teresa Kremin um, as part of our reading teachers project, one of the strands of that was looking at um, families and reading and recognising that even in the most disadvantaged families, there was some sort of reading going on. And actually, one of the things that we were able to do was to support our teachers to become researchers and actually go into um, some of their families' homes and actually uncover some of the things that were happening. And it was during that time that I was introduced to somebody called Louis Mall. And Louis Mall talked about funds of knowledge. And he really talks about the fact that it's imperative that we do not dismiss what the background and culture and heritage of everybody Everybody has something in terms of a culture, um, regardless of how small or how big they feel it is. And it's within that culture that you'll find some really, really important things that are important to that family um, and that are important to the, to, the, to the parents and the things that have made them who they are. And I would call that cultural capital. Cultural capital for me is the fact that I come from a family where I was encouraged to read. We were encouraged to go to the library. I, I was a reader and a writer. During my time at nursery school, and my mum can remember the nursery teachers saying to me, this girl needs to go outside. All, she's do, all she does is read and write. But that, that was part of my culture. We were encouraged to write. We were encouraged to read. We read the Bible. We had to recite. We had to learn um, bits of it, stand up and recite it. So an oracy was a big thing and yet when I went into school that was never acknowledged it was never spoken about it was never you know we were just that disadvantaged family with the, the large family who came from that area over there and actually I think it's it, it's it's so important that we don't dismiss our children's culture and heritage we call it the invisible backpack it's that bag full of things in there that children often never unzip, they're told to take it off and throw it in the corner when they get to school, um, because that's not important, that's not the type of knowledge that we want to teach you, actually there's some set knowledge that we think is the best, and is better than what you can bring to the table, but actually I think the two can coexist, and I think it's really important, because what Louis Moll talks about is the fact that there is a reciprocity with sharing, there is a, an acknowledgement that families feel valued, when you value what they bring to the table, families feel validated 
they feel important and actually they feel that it, they're not being done to but actually it's a, as i said a reciprocal thing so if i can find out about my family's languages where they've actually come from part of our school population is a large somalian population yet half of them have never been to somalia because they've actually come via europe when we found out about where our families were from it's amazing um how they were able to share all the countries because they've been to more places they know there's more places in europe that they've been to than, than i've ever been to um, and they know more about european culture than, than i i do i do um and when, when they're sharing those things and sharing them the little um, bits about their wider culture and, and, and heritage it's really really empowering so in our curriculum we have something called the hours we start off with our lives and families when we do the hour, hours every half term so we do our lives and families our community our world our passions our global village and then we end up with our future and then during all of those half terms then we have an opportunity to share about our families and we share and the children share then we move out into our communities, teachers share about their communities, children share about their communities and their families. Then we talk about our passions, what has driven us. Families can share that. Um, we invite families in. We've got parents to school days where they can come in and share. And we plan specifically for them to be in our space in our curriculum time to talk about those things. So it's, it's a, again, it's that thing about making time. If it's important to your school, to your to what you do as a school, to what you value and what's important. You'll make time. I have to think our, our curriculum's overloaded. There are opportunities, secret opportunities, don't tell anyone, to, to pare down and do less in certain spaces, but do 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 it really well. So what you do, do it really well, but make time for those things that you value and are important to your context, your parents, your community. Um, so that they feel valued and part of what you're trying to do. That's so wonderful. I just love that. It's such a such a simple thing that a school could introduce if they wanted to embrace the identities and the backgrounds that their children are bringing into school, but not in a tokenistic way. I can tell that's a really meaningful part of your school's curriculum and it's given that really dedicated time we did a lovely episode with a, a guy called Carl Honoré who wrote a book called In Praise of Slow and he was talking about the curriculum and he was saying I think very similar to what you were saying there that you know, he talked about the breakfast buffet curriculum that quite often we all do we want children to be knowledgeable and that's brilliant but actually we overload it so we end up with this rush for knowledge and there's so many different things to pick up and I want children to be really knowledgeable but he uh, and I'm a real advocate of a knowledge base yeah but but what you're talking about is carefully selected and actually narrowing that down a little bit so that we've got that depth of understanding and and space for that kind of exploration there as well that's really wonderful. One thing that always strikes me when I hear you speak and, and when I've read, read read things you've written, Sonia, is the fact that you clearly have extremely high expectations for your school, for your teachers, for the children, everybody. How do you get everybody, the parents, the staff and the children to match you in this regard? I think we're very lucky. And I, I know people say, you know, it's not about... Um, the kind of statements that your school has, you know, the, the kind of mottos and values and things like that. They're a small part of it, but I, I was very lucky to have inherited values and cultural mission statements and things. 
And I think they're just so perfect for something that you can say every day to, to your children. And you've got to be really consistent in that. So we, we've got two um we're church school, so we've got with God, nothing is impossible, and you are the light of the world. And I've never, I've never had two, two statements that are so easy to use in every single sphere. You've had a fight. Children have had a fight, and that you, uh, God, is that being the light of the world? Mm. Um, so you can use them in every single situation. And I don't think there's a day when we don't use those statements we've got very too simple we're very much about behavior because i do feel that if you if behavior is not managed you can't deliver that consistency of teaching and learning so we're very much on the ground hands-on leaders we work with our parents very closely to enable their children. One of those things that I would say to parents is come in, don't just hand your children over to us, gosh, who are we? Come in and see what we do. And, and if, if children, if we have children who have behavioural issues, we invite our parents to come in and actually support us to, to move that forward. We've kind of cracked those kind of areas now because of the consistency of practice. Um, and I think we, because of our systems, because of the embedded culture now, I think it is embedded within our school now of high challenge, of this vision that all children must leave St. Matthews, knowing that we've done our very best on our leg of the journey. And when we hand the baton over to the secondary schools, we can be confident that we've done what we need to do. And it doesn't. it's not about working harder. It's not about never-ending hours. I think one of the things we've really worked at is to pair back lots of the things that we, we've done. And I think we, we've had a teacher who's come, who's, who was with us 10 years ago and has come back to us about two years ago. And, you know, the difference between then and now, she would say, is phenomenal because we've pared back so much on some of the things that we're doing so that we can really drive forward some of those key values um, and that key culture that I think is imperative within a school. And it is about, I'm not saying that people don't care. I'm, I'd never say that, you know, leaders don't care. But I think there has to be a deep caring for children to do well. Mm-hmm. Things that you will not stop on that mission. And I, I have to keep saying it's not about working harder, but it's about being really mindful of what you bring into your school and being really clear that this is, this is why I'm so passionate about evidence informed mm. because I just, I just think we, we just waste, we've wasted so much time on things that just have not worked. Mm. And I think there's a better way. And I think organizations like the EEF are really good at just making it really accessible um, to teachers to see things that have been peer reviewed the evidence is there. Of course, you've got to think about your own context, about your own children, about your own families. Nothing can work everywhere, um, as Dylan Williams says. Mm-hmm. But I think there is enough evidence for us to know that there's certain things now that we shouldn't be doing mm-hmm. and certain things that we should be doing. So I think it's really important that we give our teachers this understanding, hence why professional development is really important, I think. It sounds to me like in your school community, and I really want to come and see it now, but mm-hmm. you're just so intentional about everything you do it sounds to me like there's real clarity about what you do and why 
and that's just really refreshing to hear Sonia I'm going to sneak one last little question in if that's okay because it just came to mind which was you're a Latin teaching school are you not oh yeah so we spoke to Andrew Percival recently our most recent guest he was just wonderful and he was singing Latin's praises I'm not getting funding from classics or anyone <laughs> to do this, by the way but you can tell I'm toying with it myself at the moment. So give us a, a brief view on that. What's your angle on why and what are the benefits? We kind of came through the back door, actually. And I have to be honest, because we weren't actually, we've got to do Latin. We actually had a teacher who did Spanish at our school, but she was she went on off on maternity leave and she kind of went back to back off on maternity leave. And we were literally left up in the air. And, and as always, you know, I'm always doing my reading and I was reading about the benefits of Latin um, and what the evidence was saying. And I thought, gosh, this is something that we should be doing. The vocabulary benefits in themselves mm-hmm. just amazing, mm-hmm. as well as the knock-on effects on other curriculum areas. So we went to a meeting, we just happened to cut there was a meeting happening at the University of Birmingham so myself and the deputy went along and we were just blown away blown away by classics for all and the absolute support that schools get who sign up to being part of um, their Latin training so um, we kind of got on board very quickly and, and the thing that I wanted was not just one teacher to be empowered to teach it but I thought let's all go for it so we did our training and every member of staff um, had the training and it was just so exciting we were so excited and it was just so strange because at the time we uncovered that we actually had two teachers one that was a classicist (laughs) and another one that had done Latin at Cambridge so you know again it was really kind of empowering in the training and they were really empowered and you know we got really excited about the whole thing Um, and we haven't looked back it's just been the most fantastic experience for us as a school you could never know what languages your children are going to go on to studying because we've got quite a few feeder schools but what latin does and the research says that it's a springboard for learning other languages the kind of patterns within latin um, enables children to learn as i said other languages and, and kind of build on what they what they've learned it's brilliant for grammar it's bit brilliant for etymology and that whole idea of, of, of vocabulary and the importance of vocabulary, um, learning it early. We're about to move forward Latin in key stage one, particularly focused on vocabulary. And that in itself is, is really empowering. And then the cross-curricular benefits, I mean, the history knock-on, the ge- geographical benefits, the uh, opportunities to learn more stories. I'm an absolute fan um, of it. Um, and if there's any schools out there thinking of getting involved, do it. That's really cool. And what, what age range do you begin it? In year three. Okay. But this year, Classics for All have developed a new Key Stage 1 programme, mm. particularly for year two, but we're going to move it into year one because it's particularly focused on vocabulary development. I've got to that stage where so many of my wonderful colleagues, I'm obviously going to call wonderful lots on this podcast because they actually listen now, that what they do is they listen to the podcast as a way of preempting what's coming <laughs> in the next Do it, Russell, it's brilliant. And then I can go, look, it wasn't me. Sonia Thompson was saying it and she's amazing. Sonia, I don't think <laughs> Russell needed convincing to go that way. But if he did, I think you've convinced him. And they're great. Classics for all. They've got branches in different areas. Mm. Uh, and they're so, I mean, I can't tell you how supportive they are. Mm. And there's funding, of course, uh, we talked about. And I, I just, um, we were part of the 
Latin Award, the awards, because we we quite a lot of other schools visit our school. So when they visit and they we talk to them about Latin, they've kind of gone off and done it. So we got an award for as as well as doing it, but introducing lots of other schools to it. Um, and when I heard about the programs in secondary as well, there's such fantastic teachers doing their um, GCSE and A level in Latin, so that they could you know study alongside the children. And some secondary schools have really driven it forward and moved classics forward within their secondary schools. It's, really, it's just amazing. It's, it's a bit of a movement now. That's really exciting. Well, Sonia, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed chatting to you this evening. And Steve, I reckon, you know, this needs to be a joint tour up to Birmingham. What do you reckon? We need to visit. I am absolutely game for that. 100%. You're welcome. You're welcome. We're lovely to have you. Fantastic. Let's 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 try and get a date in the diary. Maybe we could yes. do a live, you know, a live show from them. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you, Sonia. And I hope you have such a good rest this summer. You've definitely deserved yes. it after the year. Any head teacher that's done what you've done in the last year, you know, congratulations on getting through what's been a, a, a very tricky time and to all your team. But yeah, thanks so much for your time at the start of the summer holiday. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Don't shoot the deputy.